Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Our political reporter Jason Rosenbaum talked with Governor Parson in a wide-ranging interview recorded last Thursday. Here's Jason. There was this roughly five-month limbo period where there was a lot of uncertainty about who would lead the state of Missouri. And I'm really interested to know what it was like for you during that time, because people think of you as Mike Parson, the politician, but Mike Parson, the human being, must have been going through a whole range of emotions about whether he was going to take the lead of the highest office in the land. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you were feeling before you became governor. Yeah, you know what, uh, during that whole period of time, you know, it, it was tough. It was tough being, you know, being the lieutenant governor, we're seeing everything that was happening in the state. And, you know, just, uh, you know, heartfelt because our state was going down a path that most of us didn't want to go down uh, for multiple reasons. But, you know, just to sit there, but but the one thing I always focused on, I said, you know, I don't know what will happen, you know. Most of the time you don't ever think as lieutenant governor you're really going to step into that seat as governor. But, you know, the reality of it was you had to start thinking, okay, what what do I, what do I need to be doing right now to prepare myself for that day if it does come? And I think I, I really stayed focused on that and think, okay, if I am called to duty, if I am called to be the governor's state, what am I going to do, and how do I conduct myself now during that five-month period? How do I maintain that steadiness? How do I maintain that leadership role as lieutenant governor? And by doing what I th- – the way we handled it, I think, was the right way to do it and really prepared me for to go in when I become governor to realize, hey, you know, i got to put the people in Missouri first uh, and foremost, and we and we got to make sure people understand that, that that's what we were doing. So we really stayed focused on that the entire time. What's been the most difficult – thing about transitioning from lieutenant governor to governor. We talked at the beginning of the year, you were trying to make the lieutenant governor's office a whole lot more relevant to state government. But I have to imagine the two offices are giant differences between to- the two. To- totally. There's no comparison. I-, I mean, you know, in the lieutenant governor's office, you're trying to figure out things to do and how you can do it better. Uh, the governor's office is so demanding of, uh, demanding of your time. Uh, and it's one thing that you're, you really have to get used to is realize that you really don't have a lot of control over your time. Scheduling is a big issue. When you go, where do you go? And, and how do we get our agenda out there in front of the people of the state of Missouri? But it's overwhelming. And we, we first went into office, I mean, you know, you had 60 hours to prepare. And, and I want to give credit to a lot of people that work for me back there uh, in the governor's office today. But you got to realize we got sworn in on a Friday and we had to be up and going. Uh, by Monday, just for normal business days, but you still had to deal with the weekend things that were occurring at that time. But when we walked in the governor's office, there was empty desk after empty desk after empty desk. And it was just daunting. I mean, you walk in there and you're just overwhelmed and you think, man, how are we going to make this go? We don't have a legal team. We don't have a public relations team. We don't have policy people in place. Um, so it, it, it was a huge task, but you know, all that weekend we called people and we called people and called people and I was just thankful people says, Hey, yeah, I'll come help. So let's talk about the issues because the, I, I promised you this was not going to be a retrospective of the, the Greitens fiasco. One of the things that you talk about often is workforce development, right. which is a, which is a nice sounding term, but I want you to define what workforce development is and what the state government's role is in pushing it forward. Yeah, you know what, Jason? What what we got to do in the state of Missouri is we got to kind of reform the way we think of education, and we got to make education and the private sector join up much more than they have in the past. The private sector has to be part of the agenda that drives education, because we got to start preparing whether they're junior high or whether uh, uh, high school students. 
we got to start making sure they understand what the workforce demands are out there. And I think first and foremost, you got to understand is, you know, we spend a huge pool of money on K-12 in the state of Missouri. The second pool of money we, we spend in higher education. Both of those have a, a, a very important role to play. We're always going to need engineers. We're going to need doctors, uh, the professional side of it, teachers. But the reality is 65, 70 percent of the people in the state don't have a degree. So, and you're going to have to have more than a high school diploma. So how do you get those people in that secondary uh, education arena, whether that's a skill set, an apprentice, or a trade school, or a two-year school? How do we take that 65 70% of those people out there? Maybe somebody's making a $30,000 job right now. How do you give them the skills they need and the training they need to jump up there to a sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 job? And that's when I say workforce development. That's part of that and doing that. You know, other states have done it. Tennessee's done it. Indiana's done it. Georgia's done it. You know, so it's not like we got to invent the wheel here in Missouri. We just got to really focus on getting it done. And it's just not about saying I'm for workforce development. You got to figure out how you're going to get people qualified to go to work. As I'm sure you know, the St. Louis region has had problems with K through 12 education for years, if not decades. There are some great school districts that are in the St. Louis area, but there are also school districts that have struggled for years with lots of students that deal with kind of the inherent challenges of poverty. Right. What is the state's role in in making those school districts, especially in places like St. Louis City and North St. Louis County, succeed and provide some of those students you were probably referring to with good workforce development training? Right. And I think that's part of it when we go back to workforce. But I think the other thing is you got to reform that. I mean, we all know that that's a problem. The, some of the inner school systems, whether it's here, whether it's Kansas City, you know, those problems exist. But, you know, you got you to think out of the box a little bit. you got to be able to figure out, okay, how do we hold some educators' feet to the fire, per se? Or what are the alternatives out there, whether that's charter, whether that's private, whatever it might be, but make sure we have the same playing field. But the, but the bottom line is, one, you, you've got to make sure we're educating these kids. You know, I'm a firm believer, Jason, is I, I, I don't think you're going to change the mentality of 50- and 60-year-old people. I, I, I just don't think you're going to change much. I mean, if they're in the system, whether it's the welfare, whether it's social service, whatever it is, I think they're there. But I think you do have an opportunity to change the kids, you know, whether that's early childhood development, whatever that might be. But we got to focus on those kids, even in those inner schools, to figure out how do you give them the tools to need to go into the workforce and, and where that might take them. Where, how do you pay for early childhood education? Because I don't think that the state of Missouri has a funding stream for pre-K right now. And I think that there has been a lot of studies that show that especially children who are in those impoverished areas, that they have preschool, they may be more uh, able to succeed in regular school. Sure. How, how does yeah. the state pay for that and help some of those school districts out that, that simply can't afford it with property taxes? Well, I, I, th- I think, one, the state has to play a role in early childhood development. I, and I realize different regions of the states like to put that in, and I get that. And that's fine if they can do it and they can figure out a, a revenue for it. But I think the state at some point will have to take a role in early childhood development and understand that's a long-term goal. Because, you know, if you start with a kid that's four years old, you know, it's going to be 20 years before you reap the benefits of that. But I think the state at some point will have to figure out a revenue stream or make sure that that's an option to the schools. Just says, hey, here is an option. And maybe, you know, it's kind of like kindergarten. You, you got a chance to opt in or opt out. It, could it possibly be like raising cigarette taxes or something? It would probably yeah, require a statewide yeah. vote or something like that. But what, what, how about yeah. cigarette tax increase for early childhood education? You, you know what? I think you put everything on the table that's out there possibly. I mean, you got the Wayfair Act that's coming up pretty quickly. That's a stream of revenue. And you know how it's going to be. Everybody's going to want a piece of that. 
But and that's internet taxes, by right, the way. Right, internet taxes on that exactly is what it is, and that's really a tax. It's just making it fair for Missouri businesses, you know, to be able to collect that. But I'll go back to it. Uh, to, to the early childhood development side of it, we got to figure out a solution for that because that, that's if you really want to change society uh, uh, for for a lot of people, then it's going to be with the kids side of it. I mean, you know, we just can't keep uh, trying to fix problems with people that uh, you know, frankly, that's sixty years old. I just don't think you're going to change much there. The other issue that you talk about a lot is infrastructure, which is kind of a word that strikes transportation infrastructure. That means money for roads. That means possibly money for airports and ports and possibly mass transit. As I'm sure you know, because you campaigned throughout the state for it, Proposition right. D failed. Right. Um, I imagine that was disappointing to you. Is that fair to yeah. say? You, you know what? It was disappointing. And I've heard all the reasons why it failed or why it didn't pass, you know, and because of the wording and all this. You know, it, it really doesn't matter at this point. You know, right now it didn't pass. So the problem still exists with, with infrastructure in the state, and we got to find out solutions to that. And we got to we're going to have to figure out ways to fund it, but we're still going to have to fix the problems because they don't go away. And I think that we've talked about this earlier in the year. I think that the there's no question that Missouri's transportation infrastructure needs more money. The problem is when you present different things to voters, whether it be a sales tax increase, whether it be tolling, whether it be a gas tax increase that's relatively modest, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of public appetite to actually pay for this. So what, what, what sort of ideas have you heard that's different from those three things that could be on the table in the next legislative yeah, session? Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think, again, I think you've got to go back here and you're going to have to get out of the side of the box a little bit and say, okay, is there a revenue stream out there? Can you create a revenue stream, whether that's bonding, whether that's a, a separate revenue source on that? But look, at some point you've got to do it. You're going to have to fix it. So the bottom line is if we, if we, don't, if we, if we don't figure out a way to pay for it uh, w- with some other structure – then you're going to have to do it within the budget to general revenue, which means somebody else is going to do without. And, and that's just the way it'll be. And there, that's actually been an idea that's been floated by a lot more conservative legislators that you just take a part of general revenue and direct it to transportation. And I think that could gain a little bit of momentum if some of those legislators are holding the position of power. But as you just said, if you do that, you're basically taking away money from other things. Is that something that you would be amenable to, or is that something that's off the table for you? Yeah, you know, for me, Jason, as the governor of the state of Missouri, I'm, I want to see what we have out there, What put everything on the table that we got, and let's see if we can find a solution. And I think when you bring leadership into whether it's the House or the Senate, Republican or Democrat, how do you get people to the table and says, okay, this is a practical way to do it. But understanding you have to do something. You just cannot keep kicking this can down the road because it's just not going to work. Since the gas tax increase failed, are you less amenable to putting another gas tax increase on the ballot? Is that off the table, given that the voters rejected it? Yeah, I, I, I think it's way early to even start trying to think about that. You know, I, maybe down the road, I don't know. But, you know, look, when people vote against something, you got to realize the majority of the people said no. And, and so you got to move on. That's Missouri Governor Mike Parson talking with St. Louis Public Radio political reporter Jason Rosenbaum. More of that conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back. We now return to Jason Rosenbaum's conversation with Missouri Governor Mike Parson, recorded last Thursday. 
there have been some legislators who have proposed putting right to work um, into effect through legislation, even though voters rejected it by a pretty wide margin. I know that you're a supporter of right to work, right. but if the legislature passes right to work and sends it to your desk in the next couple of years, given the result, would you veto it? Well, you know, I, I think one to answer that, Jason, I've always been supportive of right to work, so I want to be clear to that. And But I'm also understanding the voters, you know, it got a thumping at the ballot box. That's the only way you can say it. You know, it got beat bad. So, you know, the voters, so you got to keep that in mind. But, you know, what that legislation would look like would all depend on whether you signed it, whether you didn't, what, what those parts are in there. You know, there's other options out there. Other states have went to other ways of doing it. You know, so I think, first of all, you got to look and see what is that. But it's a tough answer for me to be able to tell you today, if it come to my desk in some form or another, would I sign it? You know, I don't know about that. You know, it's, it's got to make sure it's the right thing for what we're trying to do. What about right to work kind of by ordinance? I know KSDK did a, a story about that using a, a sunshine request of your office. So your office has clearly taken a look at that. Is that something that you would push legislatively or or suggest to local jurisdictions that they try out. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think that become a much more bigger news story than what it really was. Uh, you know, really what we were looking at at the time, and I think that was back in July. I can't, I can't remember when that was taking place. You know, we, we were wanting to see what options are out there. So we were trying to see what other states were doing, you know, and how they done it, how they're successful and not. I mean, that's really what all that was. I mean, it was nothing behind the scenes or right. anything like that. It's just us doing a good job trying to get as much information as we can to see how we move forward or what our options were. It was interesting to me because the Republican legislature, and you know this because you broke a previous question of this in 2017, they made it so you could not have minimum wage county by county. And the idea of having right to work county by county would kind of go counter to the idea of having one regulation throughout the state. I mean, I know that you're going to have to see what some of these things legislatively look like. But I mean, from a conceptual standpoint, do those two type of ideas conflict with each other? Well, again, it depends on what that final version is. You know, I mean, we looked at, I think it's Kentucky is a state that's done that county by county, I think it was. I, I think it was Kentucky that we were looking at or something like that to see what other options are out there. But, you know, right now, Jason, I, I, th- I think for people to understand, you know, I really want to stay focused on the two things that we've talked about all the time. And, you know, I, we, we get sidetracked sometimes with some of the other issues. But I'm, I'm going to go back to workforce and infrastructure. Those are the two keys for the state of Missouri. And, and the rest of this, we'll just see what the legislators do, how time goes. Well, another thing that I know you're focused on is health care because you just right. went on a, a statewide tour about health care. I want to talk about two aspects of that. First is a prescription drug monitoring program. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think that the biggest obstacle to implementing that was the fact that Senator Rob Schaaf often partnered with other senators to filibuster that. Rob Schaaf is term limited now. But there's still some skepticism among conservative legislators that PDMP is a good idea. Do you feel that the environment in the legislature is better with the new crop of lawmakers coming in to actually get that done next year? Well, I would hope the the legislators coming in, new and old, understand the opioid crisis we're going through in this state. And, you know, you're actually talking about people losing their lives on a daily basis, you know, and not to give law enforcement the tools they need through a PDM, through the prescription drug monitoring. And we're the only state in the United States that don't, that doesn't have it. You know, I mean, the reality of this is we got to do something to help law enforcement. We got to help society as a whole to curb this and and not to be able to give that tool out there to me is a long overdue. So, you know, I want to make sure the legislators understand how important that is. I get the idea of of privacy. You know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do any more to, to, 
lighten that privilege of your privacy on anybody. But the reality of it is, you know, most of the information we're talking about here is already consumed somewhere else in our daily lives. So on the information side of it, but but not to do something about that is uh, it's, it's long overdue. We got we got to figure out a solution. I do want to an- you to answer kind of the the, crit- the critics of PDMP. They say. PDMPs are in every other state, and they point to the opioid overdose statistics, and there's still a lot of opioid overdoses, even though the PDMP is in place. The the implicit idea behind that argument is that PDMP is not actually that effective at stopping um, doctor shopping or opioid abuse. How would you respond to that? Because I'm sure that's going to be brought up by a lot of people that don't like this. Yeah, you know, I get that side of it, you know, and and I I understand that argument. The bottom line is, so what's what's your solution? Do the same as you're doing? We know that doesn't work. You know, we we know what the outcome of that is. And, you know, this is the law enforcement side of me speaking. So anytime you can have that information, just not opioid, all prescription drugs. You know, it's one of the driving costs to Medicaid, to to our state. Not to be able to go out and look at that, and just not for opioid, for everyday use. We know that's being abused out there. And, and when you think of, you know, the Medicaid situation the way it is, it's, it's why I put actually the new director, Richardson, in there, Todd, uh, to take over that role is to, to try to figure out how do we get better at that. And that's part of it. Yeah, that was kind of a, a big news because Todd Richardson is widely respected throughout um, the legislature. But he doesn't really have a lot of, like, direct – experience in the healthcare realm. Clearly, he handled healthcare bills as right. the Speaker of the House. Why did you decide to make that decision? You know, let me tell you one thing, and it was really pretty simple in a way. You know, I mean, one, I think he's a very articulate young man. I think he could have went anywhere he wanted to go from Speaker of the House and probably made a very comfortable living wherever he went. The key that he come in and talked to me one day in the governor's office, and Todd told me this, uh, just me and him was sitting there. He said, one of the things I felt like I failed to get done as a leader was to reform Medicaid in the state of Missouri. And w- when I heard him say that and when I seen the passion he had for really trying to work and fix this, you know, I felt like it was an opportunity. I felt like it was an opportunity for me as a governor. I felt like it was an opportunity for Todd to do finish some work that he didn't feel like he got done. And uh, when you don't have a director of Medicaid, for we haven't had one for years now, and you're talking $10 billion of the state's budget, you know, well over a third of it. I mean, it's uh, it's time we made some changes. So I'm a, I think Todd's going to do a great job. I'm excited about him being in that director's position. It's fair to say that Medicaid has been an issue since the moment you entered state governmental politics. I think in 2005, you were in the legislature right. in 2005 right. when Matt. Medicaid was cut. Right. Um, you were there in 2007 when Matt Blunt proposed Mo Health Net, which was supposed to be this all-encompassing Medicaid reform effort. I mean, I know that maybe you haven't studied the the intricacies of that. But basically, my, my point for bringing that up is Republicans have been talking about, quote, reforming Medicaid for almost 10 years, and they've actually passed legislation to do that. Are you saying that, you know, maybe those efforts haven't been as successful as you've hoped? And how much more reforming is there going to be before expansion kind of comes as a possibility? Right. Well, first of all, to even go to expansion, you've got to fix what you got. I mean, to, to, to expand it with, with a, what I would think somewhat of a failing system now, it just won't work. You know, and, and going back to when Governor Blunt was governor, if you think of some of the things he'd done then with, with, with Medicaid and what he'd done, the cost savings at that, you know, that's probably been billions of dollars since some of that was done that we, we don't talk about. But, you know, when you see on the appropriation side of it, we could have barely been like Illinois or some of the other states that have a lots of problems there. But he made some pretty gutsy calls back then, uh, you know, to try to make some changes in that that really did save the money or save the state money over time. So, 
You know, a per- perfect example, Jason, for, for, for you, the listening audience, I, I was briefed on it the other day. But we like have like $180 million that people owe the state of Missouri for overpayments or for people that's been out of state that's been receiving payments or something. But we really don't have any teeth to really recover that money. It's pretty well just says, hey, if they're willing to give it back, you take it back. You're talking That's about overpayments by pro- providers, right, or, or people that are on the Medicaid program. Well, no, I'm talking about people, people also on that, you know, on people and providers. I mean, there's two segments of that. We've always kind of targeted providers, but, I mean, there's a lot of people out there taking advantage of the system too, and we've we got to get a handle on that. Um, is there any – would you say it's fair to say that you want to see Medicaid substantially restructured? before the prospect of expansion is even considered. Yeah, there's no doubt that that, that's what I want to do. And the other thing I really want to do, Jason, is make sure the people that need the service are the ones getting the service. And the people that probably don't or that's maybe on there for the wrong reasons. And when you're talking talking about $10 billion, you know, everybody's going to say, well, that's not very many people. Well, you know, a tenth of that's a lot of money, you know, when you figure out who's out there that's abusing the system. And I think we all know they're out there. What else are you hearing from Missourians about how they want their health care system transformed? I know that's a broad question, but yeah. I wanted you to kind of expand beyond those well, two Well, let me talk about rural Missouri because, we, you know, that's kind of how we started out. But rural Missouri, when you talk about telemedicine, things of that nature, that's going to be huge, trying to find out how do you get those services to people and how do you make it more affordable for everybody. But but I think when, when you – when you're going to rural Missouri and you're using telemedicine, I think those are avenues we've got to do. And, again, I go back to workforce development on this. You've got to figure out how do you get the people out there to provide the services. We know there's a shortage almost everywhere you go in health care. Well, how do you get the people out there to provide that services? And, you know, and how do you get people to be healthier? You know, and how do we give them that, that, that initiative to kind of do that on their own or to help them with that would be a, a help. And I want to talk about something we talked about at the beginning of the year, the low-income housing tax credit program. A lot of people might have been surprised when you became governor, given the fact that you are very much on record as a, being a supporter of that program, that you did not appoint a bunch of people and restart the program right away. You have said that you want changes to that program before the state low-income housing tax credit program um, is restarted. You know very well that this is a very controversial program. There are often very high barriers to making significant changes to the program. From talking with legislators from both sides of the continuum, maybe people that like it and people that don't, how confident are you that um, you holding this leverage of not restarting it right away is actually going to yield some changes to this program? Jason, I believe in May, when we have another time for an interview, that we'll be talking about that reform took place. Yeah. I really believe uh, working with the legislators, we've talked to leadership, with the industry, saying, look, this has got to happen. You know, and, I, and I've been around long enough in the legislature to know how it works, stall, stall, stall to the last, and say, whoop, we run out of time. That's not going to happen. I mean, I, I've been pretty open with everybody. We are not going to issue uh, those low-income taxes until we have reformed under that program so, uh, on the state level. Yeah, on the state level. The federal level, it's still going right now. Federal but. level. And we're going to issue some more on the federal level because that's money that, you know, if we don't use, we lose. So you're basically saying I – know, I know we've talked a lot about hard and fast things like are you going to veto something? Are you going to support something? If there's nothing done by the end of the session – you're not going to restart the program. That's correct. That, That's that, correct. that is something you're actually going to be hard and fast That's on. That's correct. I, they know that, and I've been open about that the entire time, and I aim to stay. Yeah. Feel free to drink water before yeah. I ask, ask the next question. As I said before, you're it, you're on very much on record being supportive of this program, and a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are because I've, I've toured low-income housing 
uh, pro- projects before. It is some of the best housing low-income elderly and, and veteran people get. On the other hand, you know, there could be people who are skeptical since you have been an advocate for this in the past that you're really going to push forward more than surface-level reforms. I want you to address that potential no, criticism. No, I, I mean, we're, t- we're talking about real reform here, and, and it's my job to prove that. So at the end of the day, I'm going to have to be able to say, how did we really reform this program in policy, in the regulatory side of it, in, in the financial side of it? How are we going to do it? But all that's got to come into play. And how do we even streamline the agency itself? Yeah. You know, so I mean, we we're gonna we're gonna t- totally overhaul that, much like what we're doing with the Department of Economic Development. You're gonna see major changes. Before we get into the the fun part, which is you get getting to appoint people things, I do want to ask about your relationship with the legislature. I know that you ha- the legislature hasn't been in session yet. You haven't had to like sign or veto bills that have come from 2019. You did sign or veto bills from the the previous legislature. Right. But one thing that I've heard from Republicans and Democrats is you are tr- making a pretty consistent effort to be more communicative with members of both parties, and you're really going to try to do better than your predecessor on uh, governor legislative relations. But as you know, things get tense between those two branches of government. I want you to kind of lay out what's going to be your overall philosophy toward that coming 2019. Look, it's foolish when the governor of the state of Missouri don't figure out some ways to work with the legislative body. It just is because it normally just bad effects happen when that day's come. Are we going to agree with everything? No. Are we going to go to toe to toe on some issues? Probably will. You know, but there's going to be a lot more things I think we're going to agree on. But you have to have those relationships to be able to get to the table and sit down and say, okay, look, you know, we're not going to agree with it. You feel that way? I'm just telling you what's going to happen. Those kind of conversations. But there's a lot more things we can agree on. But you got to make an effort. I mean, you're, I'm the governor of the state of Missouri. It, it's my job to reach out to legislators and try to figure out, okay, what is all our agenda going to be, you know, and what is really that's the best for the state of Missouri. And that's one of the great things that, and where I'm at in my career, you know, all you know, all I have to do every day is go to work and focus on, okay, what's best for Missouri. I don't have to worry so much about the special interest. I don't have to worry about all those issues. And I get it, and I've been around long enough to understand it. But really, I just want to make Missouri better. Well, let's talk about the fun part. You're getting to appoint statewide offices by, I guess, uh, the, maybe ne- what's what's the timeline for Treasure? First of all, well, you know, uh, hopefully we're going to get something done on that. Hopefully by Christmas uh, is kind of a goal we're trying to do is trying to get that off the table a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it, you know, this appointment thing that's occurred. You know, we're really in the process of making history in the state of Missouri for for what's going on here. It's it's unusual circumstances, Very just, unusual. To, to say the least. <laughs> you know, and so I always have to keep in mind. You know. Uh, what, what are we doing for the state? You know, how, what is the precedent we're setting as governor? You know, like who do I move in these places? Because at the end of the day, we're probably going to have four, I guess, four uh, statewide office holders that's never been elected to that position by the people. Now, we've all, I mean, most of us has run for office before. Uh, we have that in our background. But the reality of it is I really focus on trying who are the best people for those jobs for the future of Missouri. Mm-hmm. That, that's really what drives it. They're not necessarily political favorites. They're not uh, anything like that. It's just trying to say, okay, who is qualified? Who can handle these positions? What specific things are you looking for in treasurer? Because that job is very important, but it also requires a very specific skill set of investing the state's money, of managing some very important programs, and also working with some of the other statewide uh, office holders. So what are you looking for in that position? Yeah, well, you know what? I think, number one, you want somebody probably with a business background. I mean, it's going to be important to have that in there. And I, I think, too, a leadership you got to have the leadership of that. But, you know, really the treasurer's office, the way it's structured with, with most of the things it has in place currently, 
Uh, and I, I'm not trying to downplay the job. I'm just saying you've got a lot of pieces already in place to help that, that treasurer's office work every day with your investment people that you're working with and the, on, on, the, on the financial side of it. So you've got a structure in place that you just don't have to go in there from day one and feel like you've got to do everything. I, one of the, the facts about myself that I'm often ashamed to admit is that I was born and raised in Illinois just because uh, Illinois is kind of crazy politically. But one of the things I am proud about of my home state is we've had people of color uh, serve in statewide offices. We've had U.S. senators who are African-American. We've had a comptroller who was Latino. And we, we've had an attorney general now that was elected who's African-American. Missouri has never had a person of color in statewide office before. And I understand that you're not just looking for – somebody who's black or Latino or Asian just to fill this role just because of their race. But is that something that you're considering of breaking that barrier and, and, and trying to choose a racially diverse candidate to, to ma- basically say, you know, Missouri has had a person of color in statewide office before? Right. Yeah. You, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about a lot of different scenarios of who that person might be, why we would select them. Uh, all the things you're talking about comes up in conversation time to time. But at the end of the day, you also got to figure out who's the most qualified person for the job. I mean, you know, uh, I think through our cabinet members that, that currently are there, you know, we're trying to do that every day to figure out how do we make that playing field even, you know. And look, uh, we, we want to make sure uh, regardless what the race is, whether it's a female or male, you know, are they qualified to do the job and can they handle the position? And that's one of the things we looked at. When we, we put the school board members, uh, that's the way we looked at it. You know, who's got the best resume out there? Who do we feel like will really do the job? And, you know, it's a state elected position, so you got to figure out, you know, for me, it's like who can get elected, you know, uh, are they going to stay there and they're going to get in the process? So there's a lot of moving parts to that. But uh, you know what? Um, ever since I've been there, I, it doesn't matter to me uh, what race, you know, whether you're male or female. You know, it's about who's sitting at that table, and I think I'll do a good job. Okay, my final question for you, and maybe you'll make news with this answer, maybe you, maybe you won't. In 2020, will you be a candidate for governor for a full four-year term? Well, I, I, you'll, you'll learn that later on in the year. You know, I, I know it was a good try, Jason, but, uh, you know, you'll, you'll know soon enough. Maybe when uh, – I, I, first thing i got to do is i got to make sure my wife knows what the answer to that is before I tell you. Well, it was worth a try. I mean, yeah, i got to try to make news on this. But, Governor, yeah. I really appreciate your time, and I look forward to talking with you more in the coming months about your agenda. Jason, thanks for having us on here this morning. Appreciate it. That's Missouri Governor Mike Parson talking with political reporter Jason Rosenbaum. The Missouri legislative session starts in early January. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.